Chapter Two of Notwithstanding by Mary Chumley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter Two. Et pas tout le spectre de l'amour, et nulle part l'amour. The train was crawling down to Fontainebleau. Annette sat opposite her companion, looking not at him but at the strange country through which they were going. How well she knew it! How often she had gone down to Fontainebleau! But to-day all the familiar lines were altered. The townlets, up to their eyes in trees, seemed alien, dead. Presently the forest, no longer fretted by the suburbs, came close up on both sides of the rail. What had happened to the oaks that they seemed drawn up in serried lines to watch her pass, like soldiers at a funeral? A cold horror brooded over everything. She looked at her companion and withdrew her eyes. He had said he was better than the sane. But now she came to meet his eyes fixed on her. Was he better? She was not sure. She was not sure of anything, except that life was unendurable, and that she did not care what happened to her. There had been sordid details, and there would be more. He had said it would be better if she had a wedding ring, and he had bought her one. The shopman had smiled offensively as he had found one to fit her. She set her teeth at the remembrance. But she would go through with it. She did not care. There was nothing left in the world to care about. It was Dick Legay, who, thoughtless as he was, had shown some little thought for her, had taken her to a restaurant and obliged her to eat, had put her into the train, and then had waylaid and dismissed his valet, who brought his luggage to the station, and who seemed at first determined not to let his master go without him, indeed was hardly to be shaken off, until Dick whispered something to him, when the man shrugged his shoulders and turned away. Annette looked again at her companion. He'd fallen suddenly asleep, his mouth ajar. How old and shrunk and battered he looked, and how strangely pinched! There was something unnatural about his appearance. A horrible suspicion passed through her mind that he had been drinking. She suddenly remembered that she had once heard a rumour of that kind about him, and that he had lost a race by it. She had to waken him when they reached Fontainebleau, and then, after a moment's bewilderment, he resumed all his alertness and feather-headed promptitude. Presently she was in a bedroom in an old-fashioned inn, and was looking out of the window at a little garden with tiny pebbled walks and a fountain and four stunted, clipped acacia trees. The hotel was quite full. She'd been asked some question as to whether the room would do, and she'd said it would. She'd hardly glanced at it. It was the only room to be had and Dick's luggage was carried up to it. The hotel people took for granted his baggage was hers as well as his. She remembered that she had none, and smoothed her hair mechanically with her hands on an admiring little chambermaid whisked in with hot water. And presently, in the hot, tawdry salle à manger, there was a meal, and she was sitting at a little table with Dick, and all the food was pretense, like the tiny wooden joints and puddings in her doll's house, which she used to try to eat as a child. These were larger, and she tried to eat them, but she could not swallow anything. She wondered how the others could, and the electric light flickered, and once it went out, and Dick laughed, and he ordered champagne for her and made her drink some. And then, though he said he must not touch it, he drank some himself, and became excited, and she was conscious that a spectacled youth with projecting teeth turned to look at them. 
There was a grey-haired Englishwoman sitting alone at the nearest table. Annette saw her eyes rest on her for a moment with veiled compassion. All her life afterwards she remembered that evening as a nightmare. But it was not a nightmare at the time. She was only an onlooker, a dazed, callous spectator of something grotesque which did not affect her, a mirthless, sordid farce, which for some obscure forgotten reason it was necessary for her to watch. That she was herself the principal actor in the farce, and that the farce had the makings of a tragedy, did not occur to her. She was incapable of action and of thought. Later in the evening she was in her bedroom again, sitting with her hands in her lap, vacantly staring at the wall with its mustard-coloured roses on a buff ground, when two grinning waiters, half-carried, half-hustled in, Dick, gesticulating and talking incoherently. They helped him into bed. The older one waited a moment, arms akimbo, till Dick fell suddenly asleep, and then said cheerfully and reassuringly, "'Sisa, madame,' and withdrew. Annette got up instinctively to go too, but she remembered that she had nowhere to go, that it was close on midnight, that she was in her own room with which she had expressed herself satisfied, that she and her companion were passing at the hotel as husband and wife. She felt no horror, no sense of the irremediable folly she had committed. She stood a moment, and then drew the curtain and sat down by the window, looking out, as she had sat all the previous night in her little bedroom in her father's cabaret, out of which she had slunk like a thief as soon as it was light. Her spellbound faculties were absorbed in one mental picture, which was to her the only reality, as the cobra is the only reality to the dove. She forgot where she was. She forgot the heavy breathing of her companion, stirring uneasily in his sleep. She saw only, as she had seen all day, the smoking, hideous ruin of that wonderful castle of dreams which she had built stone by stone during the last year, into the secret chamber of which she had walled up that shy, romantic recluse, her heart, that castle of dreams in which she paced on a rainbow mosaic, which she had tapestried with ideals and prayers and aspirations, in the midst of which there was a shrine. There was nothing left of it now, worse than nothing, only a smoking, evil-smelling hump of debris, with here and there a flapping rag of which had once been stately arras or cloth of gold. It had reeled and crashed down into the slime in a moment's space. The thunder of its fall had deafened her to all other noises. Its smoke had blinded her to all other sights. Oh, why had she let herself be dissuaded from her only refuge against this unendurable vision seared in upon her brain? It had been agony. It would be agony again. If Dick had left her alone, she would be at rest now, quite away from it all her body floating down to the sea in the keeping of the kind, cool river, and her outraged soul escaped, escaped. But she would do it still. She would creep away a second time at dawn, as soon as the house was stirring. There must be a river somewhere, if not a big river, a little one with deep pools. She would find it. And this time she would not let herself be dissuaded. This time she would drown herself, if the water were only knee-deep. Had her mind been made up, she gave a little sigh, and leaned her aching forehead against the glass. The man in the bed stirred, and feebly stammered out the word, Annette, once and again. But Annette did not hear him, and after a time he muttered, and moved no more. And when the dawn came up at last, it found Annette, who watched for it wide-eyed all night, sunk down asleep, 
with her head upon the sill. End of chapter 2